Hi, and welcome to the Talking Dirty Business podcast. I'm Margot Prebenda. And I'm Sabina Husseini. We started this podcast with the desire to spill the tea on corporations and all the environmental, social, and governance issues they have. Our episodes are here to help people make more informed decisions, increase public awareness, and just vent on societal issues that blow our minds. Please note that any opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of any company or organization. And all of our research is based on publicly available information. We're here to direct your attention to certain issues that you may not have thought about before. On the last episode, we were touching upon the media around child sexual violence in U.S. detention centers. The topic is still relevant and ongoing, and lucky for us today, we will have an insider look on the issue in general. Margot visited and worked in a center in Texas for one week and saw firsthand exactly what is going on there. So to dive right in, Margot, if you could just tell us what you were doing there, how you got the opportunity to go, and what you had to do to get there to begin with. Sure, yeah. So I got really lucky because, well, actually it was a joint effort with my mom because she's a lawyer practicing family law in the U.S. And um, there are these detention centers, first of all, are in desperate need of, well, it's not the detention centers that are in need, but the NGOs that are working on migrant rights issues are desperately in need of volunteers. And there was an NGO, it's called Raices, and they give pro bono legal assistance to migrants in detention centers. And they've been calling on volunteers. And uh, they typically need lawyers that speak Spanish. So lucky for me and for my mom, we joined up and teamed together and we got the opportunity to go to this detention center and work for a week as volunteers because she had the legal background and I had Spanish. So this was how we found the opportunity. We actually looked it up online and uh, anyone can actually sign up, which is interesting. If you, you know, sometimes they need people for research, but mainly with a legal background or studying law and um, with Spanish language skills, because most migrants don't speak English. So um, it's really helpful to have Spanish and quite necessary but in terms of getting in the detention center, we had to get permission from from ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement in the U.S. And my my mom ha- was able to enter with her uh, attorney bar license, so she had that's all she had to show to enter the facilities. But I had to get a letter from from ICE from the government giving me permission to enter during that week because they were very strict. Was it a difficult process to get this letter? Well, I applied for it probably a couple months before I got it, and it wasn't extremely difficult. I just had to send my information and the dates that I would need to be there, my passport and everything, and what I was doing. And who I, It went actually through the organization Raise, so I couldn't do it by myself. It wasn't something I can just go and say, oh, I'm going to go into a detention center and the government will give me permission. So no, there's definitely a formal process with permission and you have to be going with an organization with a purpose that's going to be approved by the government. Interesting. Um, 
And what exactly were you doing there? So you said that uh, you and your mom, because of the fact that she's a lawyer and you can speak Spanish and you kind of teamed up together, but what does Raices do and what were you guys doing there as volunteers? Yeah, so mainly we were meeting with migrants. We were in a detention center that happened to be holding fathers and sons at that time because there are a whole number of, of different types of detention centers in terms of the occupants. So they separate um, families and they separate There are centers for unaccompanied children. There are centers for fathers and sons. There are centers for fathers and daughters. And there are centers for mothers and children. And then, of course, for um, individual adults, that's a different centers as well. So they do keep these groups separate. And the one we were at was fathers and sons. And we were meeting with the migrants, both the parents and the children, to first of all explain to them what the asylum process is and what it even means to request asylum because in many cases the people d didn't even know what was happening to them they don't understand i mean you you can imagine a lot of them are coming from places where they have very limited access to education and to legal processes and so the idea of coming to a country and requesting asylum and the complicated process of our asylum system is really difficult for a migrant to comprehend. So we were teaching them about that and about their rights. And this is something that was really important because they're not told their rights in a systematic way. So if they didn't get the chance to meet with us, it was really, it, it's really difficult for them to get asylum. In fact, if you don't have a lawyer, studies have shown that you are five times less likely to get asylum in the end. And did any of the migrants know, first of all, that they had any rights? And secondly, that they could have a lawyer, even though they probably don't have a lot of financial means? Well, that's a really interesting question because honestly, many of them didn't seem to really know what it meant to have a lawyer. Because what does it mean in this situation? I mean, we had a few met with a few that were coming from indigenous communities in Guatemala, for example. Most of the migrants that I met with were from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And they were coming from places where I'm sure they had never had a lawyer. I mean, these are countries that are completely overrun by gangs. There's barely any police, and if you consider them police, because they're usually in, uh, you know, collaborating with gangs. So this concept of getting a lawyer was really difficult for them to not only, I mean, if they, under, they understood it maybe, but to understand how significant it is in our legal system. Because for them, it's just like, what, a person? Like, they... It doesn't mean it doesn't mean what it means to us who know that our rights are protected by lawyers. I mean, they, these people have never had their rights protected. So this idea of them knowing that they had rights and that they could have a lawyer, it was really difficult to to um, I mean, they just didn't seem to have a concept of how significant it was. Honestly, I don't blame them because personally, I still don't really know myself all of the rights that I could possibly have. So if um, if I was in such a situation where you're coming from not only a different way of life, but a completely different society structurally and in every other way possible, specifically the indigenous communities where, I mean, just to probably be in the U.S. and be in these detention centers, 
one is extremely traumatic and two how are you supposed to know what your rights are you're being held everybody seems different looks different than you and not to mention the fact that if you're coming from an indigenous community many of them didn't speak even spanish and none of them spoke english so every single person i mean i didn't speak english to a single person there for the entire week um and the difficult the really the big challenge was when they didn't even speak much spanish sometimes they could say a few words but they could barely understand. And that was really complicated because they have a right to speak in their native language through the asylum process. However, when it's coming from a place where this language is spoken by a thousand people, a couple thousand people, how are we going to provide them with that right? This is another really big question that is a problem with our asylum process. That goes on to my next question because I don't know what the asylum process is. So if you could just describe it a little bit, the asylum process, what they have to do, the rules to even ask for asylum. I'm guessing there's some rules. So yeah, just go over that. Sure. It's really, really complicated actually, but I'll try to simplify. <laughs> um, basically, they once they request asylum, then they have to have an interview with an asylum officer. And this is called a credible fear interview or a reasonable fear interview. And most mi migrants coming in for the first time to the U.S. will have a credible fear interview. And this is where they have to prove basically that they have a credible fear based on and they have to show that they've been persecuted for a specific reason, which we call a protected ground. And we have they have to show that. Um, they are targeted that, and that they weren't able to be protected by their government and they weren't able to relocate to any other part of their country. So this is actually a really high demand for a migrant to come in. And first of all, they don't know that they, this is a requirement, right? Unless they've spoken with me because part of what we were doing in this process was explaining then this first step, which is the interview, um, to, to teach them you know, what this means and what they have to describe because a lot of them are, have experienced a lot of trauma and you just pull them in a room and have an interview with them and they, they may not want to open up about what has actually happened to them. So we try to explain that this interview is for them to prove that why they need asylum, that they have a real, a real credible fear. And uh, what's the definition of a credible fear? Like it's not me being afraid of the dark basically. So what, do, what does it mean by credible fear in terms of U.S. immigration laws? So basically, a credible fear is defined as a migrant needing to show a significant possibility. This is how we define it, actually. A significant possibility of a 1 in 10 chance of persecution, which interestingly sounds quite low. You need a 1 in 10 chance of being persecuted. But... Actually, in reality, it's really, really hard to prove this. And you have to prove that there is a protected ground that is the reason you're being persecuted. So the protected grounds from strongest to weakest are race, nationality, religion, political opinion, and a particular social group. And this last category of particular social group includes a lot of things like sexual and gender identity, HIV AIDS status, child abuse informants, witnesses, family-based persecution, indigenous land disputes. There's a whole range of things, but it basically you have to prove that you are singled out in a group. 
you're you're singled out and because of your membership in a certain category of society that could be discriminated against. And those categories are the seven that you just described. Yes, the so the protected grounds, well, there's those five original protected grounds and then the last one is the particular social group which includes um other groups. But it it gets really complicated because last summer the definition of the particular social group changed and Jeff Sessions made it so that gang violence and domestic violence were not considered credible fears anymore which is really really appalling because if you just think about it if you're targeted by a gang that suddenly was no longer a reason to flee from persecution and maybe you're going to go into this a little bit later but in the interviews that you did yourself did you see gang violence as being one of the main issues that people were fleeing Absolutely. So this was a huge issue because all of the migrants from the countries that I mentioned, El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras have massive gangs that are really prominent throughout the entire countries and very little legal system to protect that in any way. So every single person I met with, I met with 18 fathers and sons. Every single one of them mentioned gangs. or um hitmen or and most of them this these were mostly referring to the MS13 gang and uh so this was was really shocking to me when i realized that these these category this category was not enough of a reason to be persecuted because you can imagine how hard it is to tell a migrant who's i mean some of them had physical wounds on their body they could show me the scars and their family members had been murdered. So you can imagine having to tell one of them that that's not enough of a reason. I mean it's really it's really shocking and in fact the week that I was there working this policy was overruled by a district court in Washington DC. So now technically gang violence and domestic violence are supposed to be included again as a reason, but only in December. So there were six months when that had been removed. and all of the people that were deported during that time are not getting to another chance to come back that's extremely sad and the fact is is it's very interesting that gang violence and domestic violence is removed from that because if those are some of the like those are the social issues in the countries in which seemingly migrate to the US so why of course we know why somebody would remove that because then it would allow less people to seek asylum but Do you have any facts or figures or I mean you're always full of facts and figures but um around how many people actually get asylum and how many people seek asylum what what is the what what do we what do they need basically Yeah so it's actually interesting you ask about the statistics because it's really hard to to analyze Um and actually looking up the the percentage of people that get through the process it's it's really hard to get um a number that reflects the all of the migrants that have come to the US basically and I didn't even finish uh explaining the whole migrant process because literally we got sidetracked off of the first step which is this credible fear interview but once they once they get through the credible fear interview if they get a positive decision then they are typically released from the detention center with parole 
And they then have a court hearing with an immigration judge, which can happen months later or a year later. They don't know when. But in that case, they're usually released to a sponsor within the U.S. Um, if they get a negative decision on their credible fear interview, they're set for deportation. And it's possible to appeal this decision, assuming they know they have this right. Um, but it's very, very difficult to appeal. The appeal process is um, the figures around those who appeal um, is around 14% success. And that's actually fallen significantly in 2018 from the year before when it was 32%. So it's gotten harder to appeal. So in that case, then they go to a, an immigration judge anyway, if they even if they succeed with the ap appeal of the negative decision. Everyone has to go before an immigration judge in the second step. And that's the hardest step. So there's several, it's, it's really tricky because there's several parts of the process that are all really difficult and they can be turned away at any time and, and deported at any time throughout this process. And what's really shocking is even those who get asylum status granted, which would be the positive outcome of the immigration hearing, the government can actually appeal that decision. And there was a story about one man who was held for 16 months in a detention center while the government appealed his asylum status that he was granted. So it's very, it's a really long, tedious process. And even after they get their asylum status granted, it takes, uh, after, it takes a year before they can apply for residence. This is going to sound like a hilarious question, but just for everybody that has no clue about law, appeal means to go again and ask for that decision not to be done, right? Yeah, trying to uh, challenge the decision made by the judge. So overall, the moral of the story is that it's very difficult to get through this whole process. And I think it was, um, oh yeah, in 2017, about 62% of all asylum cases that were heard by judges in the second step were rejected. And this was the highest denial rate in a decade. So the majority of migrants are rejected in the second phase. And that's not even considering the first phase, which I can't even give you a statistic on because when looking at the government data, it's so easy to play with the numbers. And let me tell you, I, I read articles claiming that up to 90% of migrants get a positive decision in the credible fear interview. But shockingly, when I went back and looked at the numbers in the, in the government reports, I realized there's so much overlooked when they get to those figures in the end. Because, for example, like in one month, say there's around 12,000 migrants that present themselves for asylum. And then There's so many ways to eliminate them from the process before they get to the end stage. So, for example, there were statistics showing that like 20% canceled their interviews, like the migrants themselves canceled them. Or there's a number, another percentage that the government canceled them. Well, how is the government allowed to cancel their interview? And then there's uh, a whole bunch of no-shows. Well, why wouldn't they show up? You know, so this raises questions for me, especially having been in a detention center and seeing how they're not told about their rights and about the process. And it shows that literally, but in the end of the statistics, only less than half of them that were originally registered even had the interview. So then to say that 
you know, most of those people that had the interview succeeded. Well, that's not reflective of the original number of people that should have had the interview. And then that's just the first step. Then they have to go. So that doesn't mean they got asylum, but do they know about that? I mean, they're just given a piece of paper, right? Exactly. So this was the other really shocking thing is when, when they leave the detention center, they're given a piece of paper. And a number of the men that I spoke with, grown men, were illiterate. So this process is hugely flawed. Hugely flawed. So they're given a piece of paper explaining their next steps, which basically says you have an ICE check-in on this date and you have to be at this location on this date. And it also says you need to call a number and figure out when your immigration hearing is. So it leaves everything on the migrant to go to their check-ins to figure out when and where their immigration hearing is in front of a judge. And it's all written down and they're not told this. So if you don't read or write, and if you don't speak Spanish, how can you expect these migrants to know what to do next? And what happens is, and what I think is intended to happen, honestly, is that they won't know, they won't go to the check-in, and then they're immediately set for deportation if they're ever caught. So this issue with migrants is clearly really close to my heart and my personal experience. And I could talk about it for so long, which is why we're actually going to try to branch off into a different area of the issue next time. And we're going to talk about the actual people behind it and not so much the policies and the government action and the the detention center conditions, but but the stories of the people that are traveling to the U.S., what they're what that's like for them and what it means to get to the U.S. and what they've been through. So please tune in next time for more talk on this distressing issue.